Welcome to Scenario D, the podcast that takes you behind the magic by giving you the facts and a whole lot of feels. I'm Lish. And I'm Curbs. And this week, we're diving into the Disney renaissance with the celebration of the film that saved Disney animation, The Little Mermaid. So get ready to go under the sea with gadgets and gizmos aplenty as we get to know the mermaid who invited us all to be part of her world. The time has come. The time has come for us to discuss what has long been one of my least favorite princess films, The Little Mermaid. Now, when we lived together, Lish, you and I watched this movie many times because it often was one that won on the merits of the soundtrack when we were choosing what movie to watch. So do you actually really love this one or it was more just you thought the music was fun and that's why we often ended up watching it well I will say you know I have those like five things that I'm like help Mm -hmm. me decide on my Disney movie rankings and it's like for me this one the music and the rewatch pull are like top notch but everything else is kind of low okay so for those two reasons there's just some there's something about it that I'm always like kind of happy to have it on in the background. Like it's very bright. Mm-hmm. It's colorful. The music is nice. It's for the most part upbeat, you know, it's mm-hmm. got like the good feelings from like when you're little, it's got a nostalgic factor for me. Um, so I, I like to have it on, but it's not like, am I like, it's my favorite and I right. love it. No, but I'm always happy for it to just be on in the background while like you and I are having our discussions or doing homework or whatever we were doing back in the day. Mm -hmm. See, I enjoyed it way more than I remember liking it. Like I was pretty much dreading having to rewatch this because I just can't stand Ariel and that hasn't changed. But as soon as Mm -hmm. the movie started, I was like, this is super joyful and playful. Like why did I ever give this a bad rap? And I remembered what always stands out to me. Did you ever hear Freddy the Fish? Did you play Freddy the no, Fish as a kid? Okay, so there was this computer game that was in the same vein for anyone who remembers Putt-Putt, the car. There was a game called Freddy the Fish where there was a fish that kind of looks like Flounder that was trying to like find a peanut butter and jelly sandwich under sea- underwater. I don't really know. Yeah, your face explains everything. But every time Flounder comes on the screen, I'm just like, ah, yes, Freddy the Fish. So it's a weird, <laughs> it's a weird, weird connection for me. And yeah. there are also... Like the thing that stood out to me this time as well, as I'm more critically watching it, there is way more drama than in previous princess films. Like within the first 15 minutes, there's a boat that's on fire. Triton destroys Ariel's hideout. Like characters just seem to be showing a lot more emotion than in the previous three Mm -hmm. princess films we've watched with the exception, of course, maybe of Cindy crying in the garden after her dress is torn. But I was just like, wow, this is an emotional movie. But you've got to get to the like, third act before you get to that like this one starts off with like lots of feelings yeah that's true like cindy was in the third act you mean yeah Yeah, no this one kind of out of the gate is people feeling stuff so i'm like all right like this (laughs) 
this is more, there's more feelings than I remembered. And I also couldn't help but laugh when we got to the part of your world scene because Joel and I, my younger brother, for those of you who don't know, Mm -hmm. we were watching it the one time. And when she gets the line of saying bright young women sick of swimming, Joel thought she said pregnant women. So now every time I watch it or hear the song, I think she's saying pregnant women. And I laugh every time. So I know that's not an intentional like laughing moment, but here we are. So Mm -hmm. I found a lot of joy watching this film, which I had never experienced with it before. Quite a novel thing. Well, I have to, I have to say though, that when we did live together, we watched it a lot, but you never, you never like fought me on it. It was not like me begging you to watch the little mermaid and you being like, no, it was something that we, we generally agreed on. And you know what? You're right. And I think a lot of that is because it has become in like the cultural zeitgeist of Disney films. It is one of the iconic ones. And I think it's because it was so impactful on the future of Disney animation. And you and I both knew Mm -hmm. that. So, and it's one that everyone else was obsessed with. So even though I didn't grow up with it, I understood that it meant a lot to people. And I mean, now that we've learned more about it, I can understand that pull a lot more Totally. Yeah. Because like what, so like, let's go back to the beginning. Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. The 1980s was a big time of transition for Disney, right? The the mm-hmm. climate of film at the time was that a lot of these big budget studios were being taken over by multinational conglomerate companies. So a lot of bigger studios surrounding Disney were being sold, bought, traded, whatever, for real estate, basically, in the entertainment world. And Disney was one of the few that survived. Now, that sounds really exciting, but this survival was coming at the cost of them competing with films like that were huge blockbusters or super high concept. So you had films from George Lucas coming out, like Star Wars Mm -hmm. or Indiana Jones, that were just so different from what Disney was putting out at the time. And then you also have these like super high action films like Die Hard. You had dance musical films like Dirty Dancing coming out, Top Gun Mm -hmm. and other military movies. Like there was just so many things that didn't fit with what Disney's brand was and what their product was. And at the same time as that was all happening, the company was suffering the loss of a lot of their you know, veteran animators and artists. They started to retire. Mm -hmm. They started to pass away. They started to just move on from Disney. And as a result, all of these films they started to make through the late 70s, early 80s, they were no longer living up to the promises of what people associated with the name Disney. So actually then, as a result, there was a lot of talk about shutting animation down, which to us now sounds like a travesty. And it would have been, but that was just the reality of where the company was at the time. Well, the culture even was just kind of like animation was this thing that we used to do really well. And now we just kind of dabble in it. And there was actually no expectation on those movies to make back its money. Like they were Mm -hmm. just doing it because it's like, okay, like we're Disney. I guess this is what we do. We put out an animated film like every like four years. So almost one of those like tradition for tradition's sake type of issues. Exactly. Where it's like we've exactly. always done it, so we'll always do it because that's all we've ever yeah. done, right? And and nobody, if you uh, see interviews from people that worked at the company at the time, none of them were, they all knew what they were doing. They knew that they weren't making the mm-hmm. masterpieces that had come before them, but they didn't really feel like they had any control over that. They're just like, okay, mm-hmm. like- you know, it's cool. We work at Disney, but like our movies kind of suck now. Like it was just part of the culture. 
They brought in new mm-hmm. leadership uh, in the 80s with the hopes of kind of reviving the animation department. Michael Eisner, right. Frank Wells, and then they brought in Jeffrey Katzenberg to run the animation department. And do you know, sorry, do you know where any of them came from? Like, why why were they picked so Michael Eisner came from Paramount and I believe Katzenberg did as well. Okay. So they were from those other big budget studios that were mm-hmm. not not necessarily even competing with Disney, but that were existing alongside Disney as all these other places were being bought and sold and traded and whatever else. Exactly. And like they had all okay. come with a lot of success under their belt, like winning Oscars, top box office movies, like you said. Um, so they all had that background, but no animation experience, which I I understand, <laughs> but I also am just like, this is that just shows you like where the company was at, that animation was just not the priority. They literally brought in people that had never even done it before to try to it's run it. It's just so funny. It's funny to me. Like, I mean, so getting jobs these days is hard, right? And yeah. like, you and I have dream jobs that- yeah you know, we're going to get someday for Mm -hmm. sure. But uh, for now, it's like the stepping stones seem pretty big. And you know Mm -hmm. how they always, we always are like, you just got to take a chance on me. Can you imagine being someone like Michael Eisner, who's like, yes, I was president or whatever of Paramount, but I know nothing about your huge company. Please hire me. Take a chance on me. Like that seems like such, it seems so wild. It's one thing to take a chance on someone who's starting at like a more entry level position and that you can groom into yeah. your culture and like what you need. But it's like, we're just going to take a leader and put them into a leadership position with no context and like hope for the best. Like that just but, sounds But honestly, it, it does. But like I said, it shows you where their thinking was at because their live action department was the one that was booming. The parks were mm-hmm. um, what was doing well and that's where their money was. And then animation was kind of just this like, little thing over here that we just do just because well and wasn't animation such an afterthought that they actually moved it somewhere else too they did they kicked them out of the like you know legendary building that that walt built move move them weren't they moved them to like trailers they're like it's not actually even ready your new studio isn't even done (laughs) so there's your portable or i don't know whatever it was at the time but We've set yeah. up a nice bunch of trailers and connected them. It's like being back in grade five and being in the portable yeah. class, like where you're just excluded from everything else. Oh my gosh. That's just yeah. so, isn't that wild to think about that what many people see as Disney's history was almost like, like you said, it was kind of an afterthought. It was like, and yeah. just go over here now in the background. Yeah. Like you're not important enough to get more than this. That's so wild and, to me. And that's gonna that's gonna have a culture impact as well on all the animators and stuff that are still there. Like you already know this kind of the status of where you are in the company and then just to have something like that mm-hmm. happen. And the reason they did that mm-hmm. was to make room for their like live action division and their live action stars because those were right. the money makers at the time. So that's mm-hmm. where the priorities were. Right. Man. So like what what movies or movie, I guess, had they wrapped up that made them think that animation maybe wasn't such a good idea? <laughs> well, when they they brought these guys on, they were working on The Black Cauldron, which was oh, no. way over budget. <laughs> have you seen The Black Cauldron? I I honestly haven't. It has no <gasps> for me whatsoever. Like, oh, I don't gosh. know. Maybe I'll watch it's... it if we do an episode. <laughs> I mean, it's not quality. I, it's not worth it except to say that you've yeah. seen it but uh... I guess. uh did you know that it was beat at the box office 
office by the Care Bears movie. Okay, I'm, I didn't, but I am going to be honest with you and say that if I had to choose between the Black Cauldron and Care Bears movie, heck yes, I'm picking the Care Bears movie. You kidding me? Care Bears. That, like, Care Bears, I lived for the Care Bears. That's not a low, that's a high. Care Bears is a wild ride, okay? Like, I get it. I get it. Why you would pick the Care Bears over Black Cauldron, because I'm picking them over Black Cauldron. I know, but like, what other Disney movies would you pick over the Care Bears? Like, and in general, a Disney movie should be beating the Care Bears at the box office. I would pick every other Disney. Well, okay, no. The, but let's not talk about the 2000s because every yeah. single one of those films, again, I would pick the Care Bears movie. So after after the Black Cauldron, that's when these guys are coming in. They're, I, I will give them credit. They didn't have the knowledge, but they were legitimately trying. Like Katzenberg coming in and just saying like, trying to light a fire under them actually trying to like put some money there develop projects and Mm -hmm. there's actually a quote from him that says it's time to wake sleeping beauty and i think you know the director of the black cauldron like got mad at this comment and then was fired and there was like a whole (sighs) but like that was like they were trying to shake up the culture and the atmosphere with the animation teams which they were in desperate need of an overhaul there Right. Well, and I mean, it's quotes like that that make me super emotional because even rewatching Little Mermaid the other day and when she's singing about like, I don't know when, I don't know how, but I know something's starting right now. Oh, like in the context of the fact that we now know that the Little Mermaid started this golden age Mm -hmm. or renaissance of Disney animation, it just makes me emotional. It's like prophetic. Like we're coming into something new and exciting that hadn't been seen before. And it just really, it brought, it brought a tear to my eye. It really did. Yeah, it's uh it's beautiful. Gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about like how this movie came to actually be. So also mm-hmm. uh, going on at the time they started releasing VHSs. So Pinocchio was the first movie that they actually released out on VHS. And then they and realized for good reason. Yeah. <laughs> they realized, wow, we can make a shit ton of money off of releasing these movies. And then they implemented mm-hmm. the whole like vault system, which was like genius right. controlling the um, supply and demand factor. So that also put a lot of pressure on the animation department to put out new content and content that True. they could sell in the theaters. But now they also had another way of collecting revenue from these, which was through the VHS right. market. As a side note, real quick, just gonna stop you there for one second. Can we yeah. just reminisce on how beautiful those ads for like the Walt Disney Masterpiece Collection were back in the day on the VHSs. Like, oh, do you yeah. Watching so those good. and being like, oh, so gorgeous. And we never owned like any of them. So it was always like, I want that one and that one and that one. I know you guys had all of them. Yeah. Like Maria, Maria taught, like treated you guys well. You she got did. a lot of them, but I just needed to throw that in because the Disney VHS were a thing of beauty. All of them. That advertising oh, for was sure. genius. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, and yeah. Like I said, the whole like vault system of like, you can only buy this one this year. And then it's like going back in, like it was really smart for, you know, Mm -hmm. how things were functioning at the time. Um, But yes, like I said, this also put a lot of pressure on getting more projects greenlit. They wanted to switch to a model of instead of having one production come out every four years, they're like, okay, let's pick up the pace. And Roy Disney actually promised we're going to have a Disney film come out every single year. So they all of a sudden had to ramp up production and put a lot of things, um, get a lot of things going. 
So they did this thing called the gong show where pretty much anyone, literally anyone (laughs) who could get in the building could come in and pitch an idea. And this was one that was Little Mermaid was pitched at this like gong show format. And it was actually gonged. Mm -hmm. It was fully rejected. Which is a no, right? Okay. Oh, yeah. 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 Gong, gong bad. Okay. (laughs) I guess that checks uh, out. We don't use the phrase gong show as a compliment. (laughs) No, no, it's never a good thing. Um, Yeah. Katzenberg said no. um, And the reason being because they had a live action movie about a mermaid already out splash that was like a huge oh yeah okay they were yeah 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 you know they thought it was too similar basically so then what made them change their mind what made them pick it up um ron clemens was the guy that like actually fought for it saw its potential wanted to develop it and then they finally okay yeah right and ron was the director correct yes ron and john ron and john what a team yeah well and i think Part of it was, I think the second time, if I recall correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, please. But I think like the second time that they pitched it, because they brought it back again. And I think they really started to highlight the ways that they would be able to differentiate it from Mm -hmm. Splash and like make it feel unique. And her red hair, which has long been a beloved feature of Ariel as Little Mermaid. It's iconic. And I think that's one of the reasons that Katzenberg and Eisner were able to see the potential because they were able to rework mm-hmm. this idea of a mermaid into something that felt fresh. And I mean, red is a color that stands out. It creates energy for people um, and it helps make Ariel feel completely unique from everything else yeah. that existed in their kind of story arsenal at the time. So I mean, bravo for the red hair, but not for putting that red hair with that pink dress she wears. I still don't know who thought red and pink together was a good yeah. idea because it's not spoiler. It's not the not best. Good. Um, but I digress. That really yeah. is neither here nor there at this yeah. time. I think the other reason that Ron and John, what a team, were yeah. able to convince them was because Disney hadn't done a fairy tale in 30 years. Like that's a very True. long time. Yeah. For a studio that made its money off of mm-hmm. fairy tales for such a long time, that's a long time for them to kind of lay dormant. And by bringing in a heroine that felt fresh and revived and like looked different and had a very different feel, they were able to keep within the Disney tradition, but not just cut and paste what they yeah. had done before. Totally. Right? And yeah. um, Disney had actually tried to develop the little mermaid in the 1940s, but had never gotten it off the ground because it was kind of just, it felt a little old-fashioned they couldn't figure out how to make it fun they couldn't figure mm-hmm. out how to because the original story is like she ends up killing herself because Derek falls in love with someone else it's dark yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they they hadn't quite figured out how to make it feel a little more mm-hmm. lighthearted and fun so they did use some of the concept art um as a way of determining the look and feel mm-hmm. of what it could be the new telling but humor was a key part of the storytelling and let me tell you humor and music in this film, oh, they work together so beautifully. This film was one of the first times, and not definitely not the last, that music was the first thought. Like it was, totally. it was the driving force. Yeah. Yes, it yeah. set a direction for scenes that had the animators asking how they could bring it to life. And this kind of melding of music and storytelling created a very different type of relationship between the animation and the story that had ever existed before and the genius behind this was one howard ashman who i know you love Love i love him 
Most diehard Disney fans love him because of what he brought to the studio in the very few years that he worked for them before his Mm -hmm. tragic death, way too young. Um, But he actually approached Disney with an interest in being part of the project. He had been a big, big ish growing name on Broadway as a lyricist and director. If you've heard of Little Shop of Horrors, that was what he was really known for, which is described by many as a cartoon in live action. So he's big into these like theatrical, over the top, humor laden, joyful kind of soundtracks. And he had always grown up loving Disney films because who didn't? And as a result, he really wanted to bring a sense of life to the production. And he was friends with Alan Menken, who became another Disney legend from like the music writing side. And together they became this legendary team that actually moved the production forward in ways that could not have been done without them. So for example, like Howard had the idea of Sebastian coaching Ariel and how to get Eric to kiss her. These little moments are the moments that make the film feel alive at all yeah, times. I know that sure. you would disagree and we might get into it later that you get a little bored towards the end. I get it. Yeah. But the songs always catch you. The songs always yeah. have you, right? It was just such a different approach to have the songs, mm-hmm. like not as an afterthought to be like, okay, we're going to yes. develop the story with them, around them, the people that are composing and yes. writing the music, though they're involved in this like, development process so like to bring them in Mm -hmm. beginning that was that was brand new like Disney hadn't really done anything like that before so that was Mm -hmm. that was really cool yeah and like using the music as the gauge for like how well the film was going to do as well Mm -hmm. um Disney had been moving away from music as an integral part of their films throughout the 60s and 70s like really after Walt died I think the last film he worked on was The Jungle Book which still had a lot of music but then you start to see music really peter out I mean the Aristocats still had quite a bit but films like The Great Mouse Detective had none like zero Black Cauldron what a gong show like we're just not even touching that one so Oh, yeah. I mean, that has a few songs, but they're not songs the way that we all know and love Disney music. So The Little Mermaid was... No, they're not. And The Little Mermaid was a return to a familiar formula that brought a lot of joy to people. And Howard and Alan had already established themselves in their careers on Broadway as people who are able to create joy through music. So um, their understanding of how characters and music work together became this new lens to look at the development of a film as being performed for theater as opposed to film. And I know that might feel like nuance to people. They really used the Broadway format as well. So it's like the, in yes. the way that you're telling the story with the plot and like, you know, you've got like the hero song, the beginning, and that's how you find out what the character wants. And then there's like the mm-hmm. like fun fun song with like the sidekick and everything and they took that like basically right out of like here's how you write a Broadway musical and put that in yes the movie. yes absolutely especially like with monologues I think this is this is the first example we see where characters are expressing themselves through song as opposed to simply telling us the audience so you know part of your world poor unfortunate souls even like kiss the girl it's as if the characters can't express themselves with words alone. They need the music in order to actually get out there. Mm-hmm. And this meant because of yeah. how heavily they were relying on the music and the musical direction, Ashman worked with the actors just as much as the directors did when they sang, like kind of coaching them through the beats mm-hmm. of the story yeah. that are being told in the song. Yeah. Um, 
And he brought a wide variety of musical styles to make it all come together, right? Like he was marrying different styles um, on Broadway and then brought that into the film. So like Caribbean and reggae were big influences. We can hear that in songs like Under the Sea and Kiss the Girl. And it reminds me of when Justin Bieber put out Sorry. I know you're like rolling your eyes, but like when Justin (laughs) Bieber put out Sorry and it had that very kind of like tropical house beat Mm -hmm. pop music wasn't used to having that now it's a staple like now everyone's doing it but it takes I'm not I'm not going to compare Howard Ashman and Justin Bieber because Howard Ashman is actually a visionary but that type of kind of shaking up the status quo makes a Mm -hmm. huge impact that lasts far beyond that one project right like and so he was doing that here too and then the the lyrics Lish were so clever they were so witty they're like they didn't they didn't dumb it down for their audience. Mm-hmm. They let their audience play catch up. And as a result, it just feels so much more robust than, you know, I hate to say it, but it's more robust than something like, so this is love, which has like 12 words. Exactly. Right? Yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's, I, I feel like it's something that like Walt would have genuinely been proud of because it really like, it really accomplished some things that I think he was trying to do with like having the mm. like pop songs and like having something that would like, expand the brand of the film Mm -hmm. apart from just like the movie itself so I think I think he would have been proud of that did you know though that um and this kind of like bums me out a little bit but Katzenberg actually wanted to cut out part of your world from the film because he he didn't think it was working (laughs) this is just another reason that people don't like him I know I know we're not we're not going to talk about (laughs) what Katzenberg did wrong but like this is one of We'll have a whole episode of like, yeah, Katzenberg blunders, but like, yeah, it was, wasn't it during, it was during a pre-screening, right? Mm -hmm. A kid dropped his popcorn and got distracted. So he wasn't paying attention to the screen. And then Katzenberg incorrectly attributed his restlessness to how like the scene. And so he Mm -hmm. thought that the kid thought it was boring and he's like, this isn't working. We should cut it. Right. It's, it's like, it was something like that. It was. And it's like the, they're kids that are watching like it's still like very early animation stages at this point. Yeah. It's still like pencil tests. Yeah. Like they're not even watching like a done film. And like, I don't know, it's just like ridiculous to think about it because it's like such an integral part of the movie. Like that's where you really mm-hmm. find out what Ariel is after and like what is important to her. And it's like also beautiful. Like, I don't know. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And they all tried to like talk him out of it. So like uh, the directors tried, Howard tried, and like nobody was getting anywhere with him. And it was actually but Glenn Keane. I know my favorite. Him. I know your guy. My favorite. I mean, and I think I attribute that to like he's the one who was responsible for animating Ariel. And yeah. as a result, even though the music is arguably the crux of that scene, he's the one who visualized what that scene would look like if someone was seeing it. So I think he clearly was the one who could see the potential Mm -hmm. of that scene because he knew what Ariel would look like, how she would emote, how she would bring it to life differently. So I mean, bless that he was able to convince Katzenberg to keep it. It's my favorite animation in the movie. Ariel's expression, like you can even see Mm. her like playful side when she's, you know, like kidding with Flounder and she like smiles all big and like scrunches her face Mm -hmm. up. Like it's just like some of my favorite moments that was like so beautifully done the whole way through. Her reaching up. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, stunning. Where she's like trapped, but not trapped. Oh, just, yeah. And you can see it like in her face. Like this is why I actually really like Ariel. I know you don't like her. That's can be a conversation for another day, but it's just like the, the like raw desire of just like really feeling like she doesn't belong where she is. And like, I think Mm -hmm. the combination of Glenn Keane, Howard Ashman and Jodie Benson, like all working together really, yeah, you know, brought together a yeah. really strong emotion there. Well, it's funny that you should say that because Glenn Keane has actually often given credit to Jodie Benson for mm-hmm. his idea of how Ariel would look. Like mm-hmm. he heard Jodie Benson sing Part of Your World and then was like, ooh, I know what she should look like based on that, which is really, really cool. I think when he heard that, he that's when he was like, I need to do Ariel. Like he wasn't even assigned mm. to her at that time. So he was just like, Guys, I have to I have to animate this character. Yeah, it's like I can yes. see this character yeah. in my head. And I think that symbiotic relationship is once again, like between the characters, between the music, between the art direction, between the acting, like everything, it just makes it such a solid project. And I mean, mm-hmm. we know we know that everyone loves the soundtrack of this movie. There's a reason that it won Oscars for best song under the mm-hmm. sea and for best yeah. score. And I didn't realize actually that it was nominated for best song twice. Kiss the Girl was also nominated. Oh. So that year, yeah. they were nominated twice for best song, which is crazy. That doesn't happen. Like the same movie doesn't get nominated for two different songs. So that's a huge achievement. Now, obviously, we <laughs> We now know that this film is a huge success, but of course, at the time, they wouldn't have known that it was going to be great. And part no. of that was they didn't even know if it was going to be finished on time because of the fact that their studio was really just a bunch of trailers because they were outsourcing some of it other places because they were trying new things. And the animators were also determined to be, quote unquote, better than Walt. So they wanted to push the boundaries of what they were doing mm-hmm. visually with the characters. Um, and some of that came from, you know, pulling in voice actors to inspire the characters that were from different theatrical backgrounds. So both Jody Benson and Sam Wright, the guy who plays Sebastian, were Broadway performers. Mm-hmm. So they embodied yeah. characters very differently than voice actors in the past. And then they also were trying to work on another powerful villain, which we all know is Ursula. Ursula. And and I mean Pat Carroll what a voice she has such yeah. a presence like wow. such control of the character her isms her motivations and like somehow Ursula is both sexy and sleazy at the same time mm-hmm. like god love her like I love me some Ursula so I have some thoughts on Ursula and my main oh, thing <laughs> I mean I okay I think I think she's she's a great villain she's terrifying like another one that I just like I, I always wanted to watch this one when I was a kid, but I was like, I needed like an adult close by because she's so mm. scary. But I feel like she, this was the one thing where they didn't really adapt or change from the old Disney's. Like, I, I kind of feel like she's just like another Maleficent in a way. Like they didn't really develop her character more. They didn't, you know, they made her just like, you know, off the bat scary there's not really too much motivation besides like you kind of see that she has some kind of beef with triton and she's just like she's just like evil you know like i i it just kind of seems like a little bit too much the same as what they did in the old one and that's funny because i would i would kind of disagree i i think that ursula 
whether we get her whole backstory or not, I think mm-hmm. that she more clearly has motivations than Maleficent for being evil. For one thing, it's not just that she wasn't invited to a party. We get we get a sense that something, like you said, she's got some beef with Triton. Apparently, yeah. earlier versions of the story had them being siblings, and she oh, did something okay. to banish herself mm-hmm. from the castle. Yeah, apparently that opening song, Fathoms Below, the deep director's cut, the extended cut, had some verses about like what their falling out was like. And that explains okay. that line that everyone always asks about, which is like when I lived in the palace, right? So yeah. She also feels, to me personally, watching her, like she feels more self-possessed than Maleficent does. Maleficent is like, I'm a queen and that's that. Whereas Ursula is like, she seems to have goals. Like she, her desire is still to be in charge. And Maleficent's like, I am in charge. I don't need anything. I'm doing this for fun because they're like spiders and I'm <laughs> going to squash them one by one, Frollo style. I don't know. I think it's just for me, it's just kind of like the same general trajectory and like... I don't know. I would have liked more. Like, uh, what? what is she really, really after? And then in that, you know, I hate when she gets, like, giant at the end. I'm just like, what is happening? Like, I I really, really lose steam on this one after uh, Kiss the Girl. I'm just like, I don't, I don't even fully... Well, I know you you don't understand what's happening, which I think is hilarious. Yeah. Let me break it down for you. So Kiss the Girl happens. Ursula realizes yeah. that, oh, Ariel is actually going to get Eric to kiss her. So she turns herself mm-hmm. into a beautiful woman with Ariel's voice. She um, basically possesses Eric. Eric proposes to her. He's going to marry her in her, like, you know, sexy yeah. form. And yeah, then yeah. I guess... And then uh, Ariel gets her voice back through this really comical little fight. And then Ursula's mad about it. Triton comes to like break the contract but can't. So he trades like himself for Ariel. That's a thing. And then the big fight. Now the big fight. So there is really no other reason for her getting big besides the fact that Kattenberg. That's what I wanted to know. Yeah. No, there's no point besides the fact that Kattenberg didn't think it was dramatic enough if it was just some like underwater fight. So Right. He was very inspired by Die Hard, which was super over the top, and it was very popular at the time. So he's yeah. like, let's make her huge and make this like a super epic battle. I mean, I've got to be honest, that that big climax, I think it's really weird. I, it doesn't sit well with me. I don't like when Eric's like, I lost her once. I'm not going to lose her again. Dude, you couldn't even remember what she looked like. I'm sorry. Like, I don't yeah. buy this love story. I don't understand. I agree with you that it's a little weird, but no, I'm still going to be on the other side of the fence from you with this Ursula situation because I think she's sneaky and manipulative in a way that Maleficent wasn't. Um, I also think that she is just so confident. I love it. I, we, we can we can agree to disagree on this point because I, but you also are biased towards Maleficent. Everyone should know that. You Look, really well, like Maleficent. I'm, I'm not so. saying that I don't like Ursula and like, you know, what they did with her and the animation and the song and everything. I just, to me, that is like the, the one thing that didn't really feel fresh, I guess is all I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. And I think like they, with the next movies, like they, like, it's just like, okay, we've got the princess and then we've got this like evil woman that like, is trying to get right. her for some reason, you know, they're just like with that kind of plot, it just, mm-hmm. you know, they're trying to modernize it. I just would have liked maybe a little bit more there. That's all. Okay. Okay. So now that I've explained Ursula to you and why she gets big, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you finally get big for no reason. <laughs> Yeah, for really no reason. So, yeah. It's just so dumb. Anyway, that's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um <laughs> I agree. 
So you know I have to talk about the the technology and some of the things that they did on this movie, as always. Of course. So this was mm-hmm. actually the last animated film to use hand-painted cells. Oh. They actually hand-painted every single bubble, which is like millions of bubbles. That's ridiculous. Well, I, I had also heard that they were outsourced to China because there were so many of them. So they had artists in China working on them, but they almost didn't get the bubbles in time because mm-hmm. at the same time of creating this film, those riots in Tiananmen Square were happening. So this to me sounds now like, <laughs> not, well, actually, even at the time, it would have been the same, but it sounds like one of those Kardashian moments where like Kim loses her earring in the ocean and is like, oh my gosh. And yeah. Courtney's like, there are people dying. Like, that's this. Like Disney's going, I don't have my bubbles. Seriously. It's like it's people like, are dying. Yeah. And it's like, where are my bubbles? Please. Yeah. Honestly. Like priorities. That's so many bubbles though. It, yes. That's kind of crazy. But also like, could you imagine the film without them? Like, no. 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 Yeah. It would lose some of its like frothy playfulness because totally. like like the bubble curtain at the beginning with yes. the orchestra. Yeah. That was you my favorite parts in the rewatch. Yeah. You do. Um, And while they were working on this, they actually had people working on like the studio is in LA, like we were talking about, but they actually had people working on the new MGM studio lot in Disney World, Florida. And it was actually an exhibit called the magic of animation, which is this kind of weird to me. I mean, I'm conflicted because would I have loved to go and watch people work on this movie? Yes. But as someone who works right. in the industry, I also think it's super weird that people were like on display while they were working. Like that was an attraction for tourists. Like, I don't know. I feel like it's kind of <laughs> awkward. Like got to be like on a your weird animation zoo. Yes, it is. It's yeah. animation. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought that was kind of weird, but also would love to see. So yeah, it's kind of like I'm torn here. Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> Conflicted. <laughs> This was also the first movie that they worked with Pixar on, which I didn't really know until like diving into this because Pixar at the time was just um, like a working on their like technology stuff. Like this is way before Toy Story and all of that, obviously. Um, But they used Mm -hmm. the Caps computer system uh, for just a few select scenes in this movie. This was like kind of the transition movie where they're going from hand painted cells to moving to computer animation and the um, like wedding ship sailing away, that whole part was done by yeah. computer, which I think is kind of cool and kind of launched the oh. Disney Pixar relationship, uh, rocky <gasps> one that it was. The scene that launched a thousand ships. <laughs> exactly. Oh. exactly. Oh. See what I did there? I'm yeah. so clever. <laughs> well, I mean, a film like this, you would expect to have experimental technology like if everything else was kind of new and pushing the Mm -hmm. boundaries I would have been surprised if they weren't willing to take a chance on something that wasn't popular yet or wasn't widely used because it just makes everything feel more robust and more like a triumph as well like what a huge success all around right that everything kind of paid off all these risks they're also trying to like speed up the process right so I feel like this was uh, this similarly to like the Xerox era, they like, you know, they had a budget problem at that time. Well, now they have like a time problem. They're really trying to get more efficient and 
you know, maintain mm-hmm. quality, but like, how can we pump these movies out faster to make more money to get them to VHS right. and like all of that stuff. So I feel like right. they had something really yes. driving the, you know, the need for technology again, because it had been pretty mm-hmm. stagnant over, you know, the past couple decades, I'll say. Well, and let's not forget the like what all was riding on this film too. Not only was animation failing, but mm-hmm. there was, I'm sure, a certain like fear for the filmmakers around this because the first three princess films had been really successful Mm -hmm. in their own right. And they were, this was a completely new animation team, a completely new production team, completely new leadership team trying to make a film that fits into that legacy, but also stands apart, right? Like they have a lot of hurdles to overcome with audiences who have become accustomed to certain qualities or standards of traditional Disney films. Like they had to really hit this one out of the park in order for it to be successful. I also feel like there was this like um, stigma of, oh, it's a girl movie. Like I, I read something where Mm. Katzenberg actually said like, this is not going to do as good as Oliver and company because that one was for boys. And it's just like, obviously little mermaid was so much more profitable and like, you know, is still making like, you know, millions in branding now and like who has an Oliver and company Mm -hmm. plush? Nobody. So. I wish I did. So there's that, but you're right. And I mean, I think a lot of that comes from, again, at the heart and soul of this production, the filmmakers didn't think of the little mermaid as existing in a particular box. It wasn't necessarily in a princess box. It wasn't in Mm -hmm. a even animated film box. It was just a film. They were making a good film that they were positive, like would resonate with audiences. And they were right. I mean, it had a fantastic opening weekend and then kept playing in theaters for months and months and months. And this made it one of the most beloved films ever. Like every single 90s baby is like, let's let's list our top three favorite Disney movies. And they're all like Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid. And so many people list Little Mermaid as their favorite. Like, okay. When I worked at Disney World, the long line that I constantly mm-hmm. saw for meeting Ariel, ridiculous, like yeah. ridiculous. Every time her parade float came down in like the Festival of Fantasy yeah. or the whatever the parade was before it, now I'm blanking, it doesn't matter. Her floats were the ones that people got so pumped for. There was just a yeah. certain, there's just a different energy around the characters and the success of this film. And I mean, how many attractions and theme parks are there that are committed to this story? Some good, some bad. Yes, some good, some bad. We have the Art of Animation Hotel with a whole wing of the Little Mermaid, including oh, like yeah, beautiful and Triton, like giant. I stayed there. It was gorgeous. I loved it. Yeah. You have Ariel's Undersea Adventure, both in California and Florida. You have Voyage of the Little Mermaid, which you and I did when we went together and we hated it. It was scary. It was, bad. It was <laughs> really, really not good. But like, it's kind of like that thing you do in Disney World so that you can sit down. You know, you're like, my legs yes. are tired. I yes. Just wanna- <laughs> yes. It's inside. It's air conditioned. It's one of the few things at Hollywood Studios that like never really had a line that you could just do. But then a few years ago when they put mm-hmm. out that Under the Sea Journey of the World oh, made the so show ride. Oh my goodness. That is one of the most beautiful things you can experience at Magic Kingdom, in my opinion. Every single room, every single scene is more stunning than the next. And it's just, it's perfect for this because like, that's what's, like we've talked Mm -hmm. about, that's the heart of the movie. It's just like a room with like the songs. You tell the whole story Mm. 
and you kind of yeah. skip the end where you know all that shit happened but it's like you know <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah it's like the songs are the heart and soul of this film and like as you mentioned before, this this kicked off a huge rebrand of the Disney Princess franchise, right? Like it was there was a huge marketing campaign that accompanied this movie and they made toys and merchandise and it really started mm-hmm. this idea of Disney being an experience as opposed to just the film. Like now you could bring home like a doll that looked like Ariel or a doll that looked like Eric mm-hmm. and you could get the plush toys and the clothes and like this and that. And I mean as a aficionado when it comes to Disney merchandise and Disney plush I have an Ariel plush actually you know those little toddler ones like the animators collection I have a little animators collection kind of plush of Ariel yeah and like while I don't even like Ariel that much she's just so cute cute. I have to have her you know what I mean so really this kicked off what we now know as kind of that Disney merchandising machine which I am thrilled about because I love a good souvenir and I love a good plush toy so I am very thankful for that and and I feel like it it brought the other princesses mm-hmm. back to life. I don't know how much like you could just go out and like buy something that was, you know, Snow White or whatever right. in before mm-hmm. Ariel. Possibly you could, but like now the whole like princess brand is such a huge huge part of like the Canon. Disney mm-hmm. marketing. Yeah, you know everything. Mm. So I feel like we owe it right. to Ariel. All that. Well, and I mean, she is responsible for kicking off the renaissance that would last for the next decade and would be considered by most to be the best decade of Disney animation to date. So that's no small thing. Hard to argue with that. Mm -hmm. That's pretty big, pretty huge, pretty important. Oh boy, guys. Okay, so I just had to hop back on here real quick and acknowledge the very offensive and inappropriate thing I said about halfway through today's episode. Um, There's no excuse for what I did or why I did it, but I did compare Howard Ashman to Justin Bieber, and I would like to go on record as saying that that is completely inappropriate. It's not okay, and it will haunt me for a very long time because... They're just not in the same category, and I'm ashamed that I thought they were for any length of time. So I'm so sorry. I'm embarrassed for you, Curbs. Understandable. Absolutely understandable. Yeah. I have an apology as well, not nearly as needed as yours, but if I don't apologize for this, my sister will come for me in my sleep. So I'm sorry that I was so hard on Ursula. She's a good villain. I get it. I, you know, went off on a thing there and I apologize to Ursula, mostly because she scares the crap out of me. Right. And if uh, you don't apologize to her, she's going to come for you as well in your sleep. So that's two people coming for you in your sleep. Yeah. So many people coming for me in my sleep. Arguably too many. So there you guys go. I'm sorry. And we would be remiss if we did not mention some of our sources uh, that helped us collect this information for this podcast. The first thing that I watched was a documentary called Treasures Untold, The Making of the Little Mermaid. And one of the sources I often love to consult is a book by Jen Darcy called Villains, Delightfully Evil. And one of my favorite documentaries, Waking Sleeping Beauty. You and those documentaries. I mean, you've got great taste in documentaries, but so many of them. Love them. 
My uh, documentary taste is not nearly as highbrow as yours, but I would like to give a big shout out to Cinefix on YouTube. They have a video called Nine Things You Probably Didn't Know About the Little Mermaid, which proved to be invaluable to me. And I can confirm they were nine things I did not know before about this film. So thank you, Cinefix, for contributing in your small way to our precious podcast. And if you're looking for more shenanigans like these, make sure to subscribe to the Scenario D podcast wherever you love to listen. And of course, please feel free to catch us on Instagram at Scenario D Podcast because we can guarantee that you're going to love the magic we're making there. <laughs>